Welcome back to the program. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, we thank you and praise you for who you are and for revealing the fullness of um, of your divinity in your Son, Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work anointing us, blessing us. And Lord, give us the grace today to enter more fully into the work that you are about in the church today. We love you, Lord. We make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, without any further ado, I want to welcome back to the program Dr. Christopher Malloy, uh, a dear friend and colleague of mine for uh, 30 years now. This is our 30th year, Christopher. And, Can't believe it. Uh, he is a professor of theology at the University of Dallas and joining me today over Zoom. Thanks so much, Dr. Malloy, for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here again. Yeah, just a week between these uh, these interviews. Uh, by the way, I loved that previous interview. The, your book, False Mercy, great was conversation. It was uh, it was yeah, it was fun, but I think it was also delightful as well. So I'm thrilled that we're going to have a chance to dig further into that. But before we do that, um, we're going to talk about a theme that I think is I don't know, I think it's a, it's something that presses upon every father. And so whether it's you and me as, as husbands and fathers, but also spiritual fathers, priests and bishops and, and our Holy Father. And, and that has to do with just the concept of um, helping our families achieve the God-given purpose and mission for which they were put into our hands. I don't, do, do you ever think about that, uh, Dr. Malloy, about the reality of um, that our kids are called to be saints who fulfill their God-given mission. That's how I use it. That's the language I use with Carrie in our house is that our kids have a certain identity that comes from their relationship with the Lord. As Catholics, as Catholic Christian disciples of Jesus, their identity is become a saint. And their call is to become a saint by fulfilling the God-given purpose for which they were planted on this earth in this moment and in our lives, whether that's priest married, or whatever other special mission is theirs. Um, do, do you guys, do, do you talk about that much uh, with your wife and, and, and regarding like what it means to be a husband and father? Not enough. I mean, I, you're, <laughs> that, you're, that's you're, the you're, best you're, first answer, right? Not enough. Sorry. Continue. You're, you're, you're calling me uh, now. I have a new examination of conscience tonight with this because <laughs> of course we, you know, that's our aim, but sometimes it's like, you know, a habit that you don't make explicit. Um, and I also don't, I don't want to be putting too much pressure on them. I think in the nineties, you and I experienced, um, there was this, you know, pressure of discernment that, that I think got a little bit out of hand, uh, uh in, in, it was in the zeitgeist, if you will, Catholics who, you know, uh, really want to do the Lord's bidding and they get too kind of worried about, uh, not trusting enough about God's, how God's going to work out their lives. So I don't, I certainly don't want to put too much pressure on my kids, but I do, you know, hold up the examples of the great saints all the time. Like we read the Roman martyrology before dinner and I, and it's usually women, by the way, being torn apart by uh, men who are getting less and less enthusiastic about killing them as, as they're killing them. <laughs> it's really wild. But uh, any rate, so we do that to, because I want to call them to greatness. And I do think you know, if they're forced to read Mill, for instance, on liberty in high school, uh, I want to call them to greatness and say, okay, go ahead and read Mill and let's, let's tackle the devil. <laughs> you know, let, what is liberty? What is freedom? You know, what is the individual? What is society? So we need to get out there, like advance the curve. So I do, we do that. I, I don't know that I do enough uh, recollecting like they're, they're supposed to be saints. I wish I did. Well, I think you sort of upped the game for me when you kind of, you had to kind of uh, flex a bit by talking about reading the Roman martyrology at, ma at dinner time. Uh, <laughs> that's so doing. awesome. That, that is so cool. I, I'm feeling a little bit chastened here myself. Um, actually, you know, it's funny. I, I'm going to do a program on this probably with Kerry um, in the near future. Um, but it was, it was the theology of dinner time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and it's like, um, the way in which I have significantly failed as a father to use dinner time well, um, in terms of like having important conversations, helping my kids learn how to think, 
bringing up important issues of the day and how do we face them in terms of the light of faith. And uh, I, I was great when Kerry was talking with me about this a couple of nights ago, like, why don't we do more at dinner time, which was code for why aren't you being a better spiritual leader in the home and doing more at dinner time? And I had a great excuse. And that was, well, in my home growing up as a father, my father was very quiet because my mom had lots of personality and he had five kids around the dinner table who are not shy. And so that was my excuse is that I'm just doing what my dad did. And I've got a whole bunch of kids who have more than enough personality to fill the table with conversation. Did you like that excuse? Is that a good yeah. excuse? Yeah. Did it get me off the hook? Not even. Yeah. Well, not even. Oh, I, you know what it is? It's that little thing before you leave work. And I don't do it either. Just like what, what's the conversation topic going to be? I, I've talked to Anthony Esselin gave a, um, or no, it wasn't Esalen. It was another person who gave a fatherhood thing here in Dallas and uh, Pakaluk. And he said, you know, think of a conversation topic. And then you have a debate about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I, I was thinking about it. I was like, I got the, the more I reflected on this with Kerry, the more embarrassed I felt because I'm like, I spend most of my day getting ready for like one-on-one -on -one meetings or meetings with these teams of executives that I'm talking with. And I never just stumble into the meeting unprepared. I'm always, you know, intentional and thinking about it and getting ready for it and go into it in a way that is going to make sure that I'm doing my job. But dinner time, I never, never go into well, dinner time, right? Thinking about it in advance saying, okay, what's happening in the world today? Like, for instance, like Russia invading Ukraine yeah. or what's happening with the economy and fiat currency or, you know, there I mean, it's not like it would be difficult to come up with conversation topics where I can help my kids shape and mold how they think. It just yeah. takes some takes some effort, takes some intentionality, takes you know some real work. And I'm like, man, I am missing out on this beautifully like I don't know natural type of thing. Have dinner as a family, but then use it well so that you can achieve really beautiful godly purposes in the middle of it yeah yeah no it's dinner is fantastic and the other thing is it was thinking i was thinking of what the priority of vocation over profession and so especially you and i i'm you know insofar as you do some things theological specifically and even relationship building team building um that's very human it's very good it's good enough itself it's more than just like I don't know, a mundane profession, if you will. And um, similarly, I'm a theologian, so I'm supposed to be all, you know, doing important stuff. But as a matter of fact, raising those kids and having those conversations takes supremacy. And so, yeah, it's a call to conscience to get prepared. And that's the vocation over the profession. Well, I'm talking today with Dr. Christopher Malloy. Uh, he's the author of the book, False Mercy. And last week I had him on to discuss that book. And um, when we're done discussing this topic that we're on now, later in the program, we're going to go back to that book and, and break open a, um, a couple of other chapters uh, with time permitting. Um, right now, sort of the entry point conversation was the sense of that, that our kids are entrusted into our hands. There's a stewardship there that is ours as, as parents, as, as for us specifically as husbands and fathers. But for all you folks listening, you know, there's this sense of stewardship, first of all, over our own growth and holiness and fulfilling our God-given mission, but then also um, over those entrusted to our care. Well, for me, uh, Dr. Malloy, this is, um, it, it nicely translates into how God the Father has shepherded his church through his son and through the mission of the Holy Spirit in the age of the church. So what has God our Father done to foster this same reality that we just discussed, a sense of holiness and, and mission in his people, in the people of God, in the church, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? These, these beautiful things. And, and there is definitely an insight that great saints, doctors of the church, and, um, and the magisterium of the church through a number of popes have identified, and that is that the Holy Spirit that gives birth to the church on Pentecost also in different ages will raise up saints to 
put a focus on these burning questions of the age to help us get insight into what the Lord is doing. What is the Lord doing to stir up, and here's the theological word, movements, stir up movements in different ages of the church to help folks like you and me, right? Christopher, who are, you know, we're, we're slugging it along, right? We're slugging it out and we're sloughing along here trying to get through our day. And boy, wouldn't it be a beautiful benefit and a help to be able to look to spirit-led, spirit-inspired movements to help foster holiness as a greater place of focus in, in, in the life of God's people. Yeah, absolutely. We need to be, you know, um, we're dependent on others. There, there are some people who like lead movements, I guess, but a lot of us need to be carried by and we sort of help our, in our own way to foster those movements. Yeah. And so uh, when we take a look at the history of the church, one of the ways that the Lord has done this, uh, the Lord Jesus in his church, is by founding religious orders. Their religious communities end up being this salt, light, and leaven for the church in her age. And often that the seeds sown in that moment bear fruit over the course of many centuries. And, uh, and what I would like to do with you, Dr. Malloy, today is just take a look at some of those instances where renewal in the church, reform and renewal, these constant uh, activities that the church should be engaging in, uh, reforming, being greater uh, conformed to Christ, her head, and renewing, uh, uh, experiencing a sense of, of uh, authentic release of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and putting them at the service of the mission of the church to, uh, to proclaim the gospel and bring salvation to the world. That the Holy Spirit is doing this in, in one way, uh, not in one way, in one of the ways, one of the principal ways is through founding religious orders. And, and where all this is headed, folks, is we want to talk about a decree where Pope Francis confirmed that. Pope Francis confirmed that through a recent decree that was directed towards a new religious order, an order that is less than, well, it's about 35 years old or, or a little less than that. It's the priestly fraternity of St. Peter the FSSP community. And it's one among several institutes, uh, new religious communities that arose with a particular charism, a God-given gift. And so we're going to talk about the gift, the charism of the FSSP community that Pope Francis just confirmed in his decree of a few days ago, I think it was February 19th. And then let's explore the meaning of that decree the meaning of that confirmation of a charism in the light of this concept that God is renewing and reforming his church through these religious orders that he raises up. So how's that for, uh, uh, is, is that a, like, you as a, as a theology professor, is that a nice introduction to the topic? Yeah. <laughs> so Dr. Malay, as we are taking a look at this and, and we identify again, specifically religious orders as sources of movements to reform and renewal, I think one of the biggest early examples of this would be St. Benedict, right? the founder of, of monasticism in the West. And um, is there anything in particular about St. Benedict and the interesting way in which his order got founded uh, that you would point to as, um, as sort of like a surprise uh, in terms of like an insight into um, like how movements have started. They really come from God and not from the man. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and uh, yes, I would, you know, so I went to Rome uh, to lead a high school program and we went to uh, Subiaco and it was amazing. So, you know, there, Benedict is really a figure that's very much in our time. You could parallel him with uh, Boethius. So Boethius and Benedict, basically the same time, one decides I'm going to work within the system, try to improve it. I know it's, it's, it's buckling. The other says, I'm leaving Rome. Every, everything's kind of falling apart here. There's corruption, etc. By the way, they're both good decisions. You know, the church is complex. So you could be this, you could be like a Boethian type person. You could be a Benedict. Well, what's very interesting is Benedict leaves to pursue God. And um, he takes his nurse with him, which is hilarious, uh, by the way. 
Um, but eventually, you know, his reputation, he becomes a hermit at the suggestion of this priest. And then um, his reputation for holiness is such that people kind of want to hang with him. But he's wanting to get out. So that's a law. You know, we see that a lot. Any rate, um, then when that priest dies, the abbot dies, the monks say, we want you to be our abbot. He says, no, I want to be a hermit. We want you to be our abbot. No, I want to be a hermit. We want you to be our abbot. Okay. Then they try to poison them because they can't stand them. And so that's a really, this is a, exactly the thing similar with others uh, that come in with a really strict rule. And I don't mean over strict, but just let's get back to God. So back to the source, if you will, of inspiration. And sometimes that's hard and people don't want it. So they try to thwart it. Well, eventually he wins them over mm-hmm. and he's, you know, he spreads like the, the movement spreads like wildfire. Yeah. Dr. Malay, I, I love these, the stories and the threads that you just put out there that it wasn't Benedict's idea to start this movement. Uh, the Lord inspired him to do something and, and he didn't even realize what God was doing through him. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love a second uh, insight that I think we'll also see very present in the history of movements that are authentically inspired by the Holy Spirit in the history of the church. And that is holiness is magnetic, right? The radiance of holiness is magnetic. Yeah. And so he wasn't saying, uh, let me get a good marketing campaign and see if I can get others to come and join me in the caves uh, of Subiaco. No. It was his holiness that was magnetic and it drew people to him. Um, I love that. And I think that that's something that we would want to pay attention to. Like what's an authentic movement? What's a sign of it? And that is following the call of God more intensely, more profoundly does radiate something glorious and God's glory will magnetically draw people to that person apart from their own seeking it, willing it, striving to have it happen. I think those are beautiful. And one other theme that you mentioned, and we'll come back to it as well, is that um, this holiness does call for a reform, a change of life that at times is quite rigorous. And this rigorous reform of life is meant to set free. It's not meant to bind up. It's yeah. not meant to, to shut down. It's meant to set, set free. And uh, I think that, again, it, that is a really beautiful um, uh, insight for us to remember that as husbands and fathers, when we're attempting to help bring reform, that, you know what, there's going to be some dying to self. There's going to be some shedding of and leaving behind old ways if we want the freedom of what God intends for us as well. Yeah, well, Dr. Molloy, we're up against a break right now. When we come back, I want to... Um, pick back up right there and give you a chance to make any other comment you'd like. Otherwise, we're going to slide forward in history uh, almost a half a millennium, uh, maybe even more, uh, to be able to get to another point of movement in, in the history of the church. Back in a minute with Dr. Malloy on Sound Insight. Well, Dr. Malloy, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. So, Dr. Malay, I, I cut you off. Actually, the break cut you off just before there. Is there any other uh, insight you'd like to share about the Benedictine movement and that reform that uh, launched into, uh, well, a, a source of uh, light in the midst of what is commonly referred to as the Dark Ages for six, seven hundred years before the, the next uh, movement, if you will, uh, really uh, emerged in the history of the church? Well, I mean, they, they saved the church, you could say, uh, in the West. They saved learning uh, through books, etc. And it, probably there's always this uh, cycle, again, that when he goes to Monte Cassino, um, there's, a, there's en- an envious priest who tries to entrap him with uh, women. Um, and uh, so there, there's just resistance to that kind of um, journeying out, if you will, um, because it, it, it does cause, it does require change. So while the holiness is magnetic, it also is, I guess you could say disruptive 
of some people's plans and and therefore um there, there can be a hostility to that or a resistance yeah I, I i don't know if there's sort of a gospel insight here where jesus talks about the way that we will be misunderstood willfully misrepresented and that's a beatitude right you'll be judged falsely because of me um and treated harshly because of me and and rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven will be great I think of a, a more recent example. If we go back just over a hundred years, we have um, now Saint Padre Pio, who early on in his priestly life as a Capuchin Franciscan experienced a time of um, silencing and, um, and uh, sort of being withdrawn from public view because of the charism that was his associated with the gift of the stigmata that he received. And it was, I don't know, it was several years where he was withdrawn from public ministry um, because of a decision of the Vatican at that time. And he humbly obeyed. He uh, humbly was docile and uh, receptive. And, and that, you know, I, I, out of a human standpoint, that must've been very difficult because he would have been really in the height of vigor, you know, right? He was like in his late twenties at the time mm-hmm. into the early thirties. And it's like, Talk about a time where you feel a sense of heroic energy and, and able to go conquer the world. And he's shut up in a, in a monastery and basically withdrawn from public view. Uh, and, and look at what his obedience was willing to yield for the church. And he wasn't told that. He wasn't like the Lord didn't reveal to him, okay, just allow this to happen for four years. And then it's all going to uh, you know wash away. And then watch what I'm going to do with that. Right? Yeah. Right. And but yeah, but as you say, you know, obedience is the mark of true authenticity. So, like Teresa of Avila, for instance, truly obedient to her bishops. And uh, by contrast, there was a fraud at that at the exact time of Teresa of Avila, whom kings would uh, seek for advice, and uh, and and I think even ecclesiastics. And I forget her name right now. Uh, I want to say it was Mary. But she was a fraud and she was actually in league with the devil and she was disobedient, <laughs> but Teresa was obedient. And so that, that's a crucial uh, mark. That's beautiful. That's a great insight. Now, of course, you've jumped right over the high middle ages. So Dr. Malone, we're going to have to go back and we're going to have to skip a number of other like moments uh, of movements in the church. I think of Pope St. Gregory the Great and that evangelistic movement out in the seventh century. We we'll have to skip all of that. Uh, sixth, sixth century, sixth of the seventh. And then we have um, the great movement um, uh, of Bernard of Clairvaux, but that sort of stays within the Benedictine family, right? And the Carthusians. But let's move ahead to um, one of the next big movements of, of the Holy Spirit at work in the church uh, at the end of the, or in the midst of the high middle ages, end of the uh, 13th, uh, 12th century into the 13th century, and that would be the mendicant orders of the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Uh, Anything you want to share about how, like today, we think of Dominicans and Franciscans as completely, you know, like prominent and accepted and acceptable in terms of their charism. Anything you want to say about the, 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 I was going to say the word weird, but the, the, the way that it was odd, what their charism was at that time. Yeah, no, that's good. So the mendicants are also itinerant. And, uh, but meanwhile, the very success of the Benedictines, um, that settles monasteries down, they own tracts of land, there's stability of, um, the vow of stability. And you've got, um, so-called secular priests. Uh, we call them secular priests nowadays or diocesan priests. They're in their parishes. They're not moved around probably anywhere near like they are now. And so there's kind of a, a stay put, if you will. And this is, uh, this is Christendom, right? And so, um, and with that, there goes hand, uh, there can go hand in hand, a forgetfulness of the old rigor, if you will, uh, and a kind of a status quo in a bad sense. Um, I mean, it can have a good aspect, too, of peace and stability. But Francis gets called by God. Again, he doesn't set out to do this. He just wants women and, you know, heroic uh, military um, prowess. Uh, 
Well, God says, no, sorry, you're going to rebuild my church. So he doesn't understand it. He starts hammering away at a church. And, um, but at any rate, he eventually gets clear on what he's supposed to do. And he gets radical. He throws his very passionate life into this. And then he goes down to the Pope to get approval. And the Cardinals at the time, look at the way he's living. Radical poverty and radical love of the poor. No home, if you will, or bare bones. And the Cardinals say to the Pope, no one can live like this. That's their, that's their thing. And the Pope is kind of looking at it as though, well, it looks like Jesus. At any rate, he doesn't have quite the courage to do this, but he has a dream. And if you've ever been to the Lateran Palace, you see the uh, statue that depicts that dream. He has a dream that the church is crumbling, but there's a little man that's holding it up. And then he realizes that little man is this, this humble little friar. So he grants the temporary approval that eventually grows into permanent approval. So then these, these Franciscans begin their movement, but in the Dominicans, by the way, uh, over in the West in Spain and Aragon, uh, they are uh, basically getting their kind of approval going. And um, although it's a complicated, the Dominicans are a complicated story, but at any rate, these movements come and they're new and they don't quite fit into the monastic. They don't quite fit into the diocesan. And so they're a little bit of a threat. You can even just look at parish collections. You know, so where's the money going to go? And I've got to, you know, how am I going to take care of my flock? Very pragmatic considerations a priest might have or a bishop. And then this new group comes in. So again, the church is this kind of uh, another kid in the family, if you will. Like, well, where's he going to sit? <laughs> Any big family can relate to that. You know, the, the kids are like, well, um, they're both joyful in their best moments, but also in pragmatic moments. No, what happens to my dresser? <laughs> well, you're going to lose a jaw, kid. Um, you know, just little things like that. I, I, that that's part of what happens. Yeah, uh, Doctor. I'm talking with Doctor Christopher Malloy, and he's sharing some insights into the the time of the mendicant orders. Uh, the, this itinerant community of of religious, consecrated religious priests and brothers who swept across Europe uh, in the 13th century and brought about an intense reform and renewal of the church at a time when the church was, as Dr. Malloy was saying, um, really flourishing in terms of its uh, penetration of civil society and the esteem and the place it had at the table. You know, Christianity um, was in a strong place at, at, at one way of viewing it. On the other hand, the church was in radical need of reform and renewal, which it needs in every age, maybe even more so in ages where um, the the culture of the day has been deeply touched by Christianity. And so here we have these prophetic and um, hard to understand, more easily misunderstood figures of the Dominicans and the Franciscans. And so imagine all of a sudden you have these uh, poorly dressed, you know, humbly dressed Franciscans walking around barefoot or in uh, in little sandals and begging for food, trusting that God is going to provide anything and everything for them, that they have uh, no ability to own anything. And so a radical sense of trusting in God. Uh, and yet the Lord uses this to, um, to rebuild the church um, in a way that is really stunning. Now, uh, Dr. Molly, one of the things that ends up happening is that as um, Francis uh, dies and, and, and there's the handing on to the, the next minister generals, we go down uh, 30, 40 years and we bump into the figure of St. Bonaventure, who is uh, this amazing saint that God raised up in, in that time to bridge the different factions among the Franciscans and help them navigate their way forward. And it was also the time when they put together this rule of life, uh, uh, this constitutions. Uh, and there was something very distinctive about the constitutions is that they were meant to be a personalization of the reality of Francis. Meaning if you followed these rules, this way of living, you're gonna look like Francis who looked like Christ um, all the way to the, uh, to the reality of the stigmata. And so there was a, a very, 
a profound thing that happens as this community begins to mature is that they recognize that there is not only a communal reality, but every individual has to make their own personal decision if they're going to contribute to the reform and the renewal of the church. Because the reform and the renewal of the church isn't just about buildings and institutions. It's about individuals following that path to imitating Christ. Yeah. And, and I really like, you know, bringing up Bonaventure is really crucial because you did have some followers of Francis that were, um, they almost saw, Hey, this is so new. We don't need the old authority. We don't need the Episcopal authority. We're, we're independent. <laughs> we're filled with the spirit and we don't the spiritual need... ones. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So Bonaventure, but then there are some who kind of, you know, the temptation is to kind of, let's, let's soften these rules too much. And he, he steers a middle course Yep. Uh, as so many wise saints. And he was a wise administrator as well as a great theologian. Yes. So when I, when I think about that for today, um, my, my brothers and sisters, you who are listening to this program, again, I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Malloy, he's the author of the book, False Mercy. And we're going to come around to that. I promise you. Um, but as we are talking about this, um, it, it's relevant for us today. It's relevant for us today because the challenges that Dr. Malloy and I talked about at the beginning of the program are, how do I fulfill my mission? How do I fulfill the call that is mine as a disciple of Jesus, but also as a husband and a father and called to, to, to do something in this world? And I want to say to you that the church has used movements not to supplant the institutional church, not to replace the institutional church, but to be uh, a leaven to the institutional church, that the work of the spirit in charisms and movements is not uh, in conflict with the work of the spirit in the institution, the offices, the sacraments, and the realities of the church. And I think that Bonaventure and the Franciscans and the Dominicans show us the way in which charism and institution ought to be working in a beautifully integrated way. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the letter and the spirit together, if you will, or the think of the bones and the flesh. Um, so the bones of the body give the structure and the, the flesh gives the movement and the dynamism. And yes. we need both. Um, and, uh, and the church is, this church is so beautifully complex. When I teach ecclesiology, it's just, it's like marriage. You know, there's some sacraments that are more divine, like the Eucharist than marriage is. But the marriage is so beautifully complex. There's so much to it. With the church, there's so much, you know, there's the structure, the hierarchical structure, but then there's these movements that are not produced by, but they are shepherded by the hierarchs. Yes. Amen. So my brothers and sisters, as you're hearing this, I want you to think about in what ways am I able to um, fulfill the, the duties that are mine uh, in accord with my state in life? Um, and is there an opportunity here for me to look to the movements that the spirit is stirring into reality today and that our Holy Father has identified as authentic movements that we ought to be paying attention to because they might be a source of encouragement, a source of support, a source of accountability for us to fulfill our call as disciples called to be saints, fulfilling our God-given mission and to help our family members do the same. Dr. Malloy, we're up against a break. When we come back, I'm going to move ahead about 300 years to the time of the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation and how the Lord at that moment, again, raised up great saints in these religious orders that um, were used to bring about reform and renewal in the church. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Dr. Christopher Malloy. He's a professor of theology at the University of Dallas. He's the author of the book, False Mercy, Recent Heresies Distorting Catholic Truth. And that is going to be our next book club, Dr. Malloy. Um, Father Nagel and Father Lewis, uh, their copies arrive in two days, and they're going to go through the book, and we're going to use it as our Lenten book club on Sacred Heart Radio. So I'm excited that we'll That's be awesome. doing that. Yeah, it's really wonderful. 
Um, well, today on the program, um, we're taking a look at movements and how the Holy Spirit stirs movements into existence, granting charisms precisely in order to foster reform and renewal in the church. Okay, so here we are. We're now at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And it's, it's interesting. I had a, my son, uh, 16 years old, he, uh, John Mark, he said to me, he said, Dad, um, no, actually, it was my daughter, Mary Grace, my oldest daughter. She said, um, uh, she was raising a question about Luther. Like, what if Luther had actually been a source of reform from within the church, rather than stepping away, you know, nailing some theses on a church door and, and departing from, fracturing the church? Uh, a really fascinating question. Um, but I, I'll let you start there if you'd like. But then the Lord was at work. The Lord was at work in great saints that he raised up that, through these religious orders that, in fact, inspired movements of reform and renewal. And so wherever you want to start, if you want to start with the Jesuits, you want to start with uh, uh, St. Philip Neri and um, uh, 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 what's the name of their community? The Oratorians. The Oratorians, yes, of course. And then we have the reform of the Carmelites. So we have great saints being raised up in religious communities uh, at that time to reform and renew the church. So you can launch in wherever you want. Well, let's talk about Teresa. We've got two guys already. So Teresa of Avila. So she, you know, she thinks of herself as beginning as a lukewarm, mediocre nun. And we're talking about someone who's not really lukewarm. <laughs> These are always calls to conscience for us. Um, and, uh, but she had the vision of herself, you know, that she was actually in, uh, in the midst of feces and in a, in a, in a uh, rectum, she was in her habit, basically in a rectum. And that's, um, that's how vulgar she was, you know, basically being exposed to, you still have many faults. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, she also had a health issue. And this is while she's living in a, in a cloistered community. She's like yes, praying right. hours a day. Now it's a little bit more comfortable, right? But yeah, well, that's the thing. So the nuns are all visiting with their, you know, all the ladies who are bringing them baked cookies. And I mean, if you've ever lived in, and I have lived in a monastery in Chicago, I'll, I'm going to talk about that one later because uh, it's relevant to this thesis, this theme that we've got um, of something new coming in. You, the, 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 the laity are always worried about these poor monks and nuns. And so they're always bringing them, you know, sausages and cookies and stuffing them any rate. And if you're religious, you love having these visits. So anyway, that was what's going on in the convent there. There's a lot of visits and it's lax. She gets the call to live more rigorously. And that's another theme going back to the original charism is kind of what the, I think you, you can see there. And so she does that. And um, people can see that she's being holy. Well, eventually the bishop wants her to go and straighten out another convent. Um, and so he's going to appoint her the head of this other convent. And that other convent, they are very resistant. They hear about this reform movement. They don't want anything to do with it. So she is literally, her life is in danger. And there's a violent um, reaction to her. But I don't know two, three, 400 nuns, and she kneels down in the middle of them. They're in their, their office um, seats, you know, for liturgy. And she kneels down uh, in front of them, and, but there's this big conflict. Well, one of the nuns decides to sing this, the Te Deum. And that pacify, everyone starts joining in slowly. And it's that uh, magnetic kind of, you know, this is a beautiful prayer. We, we, we do know this, we do sing this. And then she gives them on her knees a, uh, an opening address. And she just says, you know, my sisters, and she wins their hearts. And not that they're not going to continue to have some resistance, but, you know, that, that eventually there's an acceptance when there's that authentic holiness. But look at that resistance initially. Um, you know, that, that's difficult. Well, one thing you see common with this, this new movement with uh, Teresa, John of the Cross, and um, Ignatius is experience and interiority. And uh, so we use the day, we use the word mental prayer nowadays. And uh, I mean, I hear that from every last priest, <laughs> be he liberal or conservative, be he this group, that group, or the other group, they all agree. One thing you can't 
not do is pray. By the way, it was Teresa who said that. Don't give up prayer. She was tempted. And she meant, she didn't mean actually rosary and things like that in daily mass. She meant sitting there with the Bible and, and, and being in front of Jesus Christ. Um, so this is the new movement. At, and it's look at how it's providentially like Luther, because Luther was into experience and he had a, an experience of terror, um, which we can't really imagine. Uh, but uh, terrified conscience, um, I'm not good enough for God. How do I get good for God? Well, these um, these folks, Francis de Sales as well, had similar experiences of uh, difficulties, but they triumph through hope in God's mercy. And um, but in, in interiority is kind of the new thing, I would say. So with the monastic, you have a, a public psalter, the psalms, and all that kind of stuff. With with these guys, you have let's look within. And, and, and philosophically, you know, Descartes right around the corner. Uh, see, Luther's begun this experience focus, um, science, paying attention to um, not deductive theories, but individuals taking measurements, looking at the world. Um, you, so you can see God's providence in, in all these new spiritual movements from Francis to Sales to Teresa and the Jesuits. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Christopher Malloy is uh, sharing some reflections about the time of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, um, which God raised up through these religious communities, these religious orders. And uh, I love what you've done there, Dr. Malloy. You've brought, you've, you've teased out um, other facets of how reform and renewal happens. And um, you drew attention to two themes in particular that I want to draw out. One is um, to recover what has been lost. Um, when we recover what, we, what we've lost, there's a way in which um, we can experience uh, a, a return to the foundations, right? We can, we can experience a sense of reform and renewal in our lives that, you know what, what is new and what is coming isn't necessarily what is best or what is healthy. And so uh, Mother, uh, Mother St. Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa the Great, brought about an immense reform in her community and renewal for the church by recovering what had been lost. And what had been lost had been lost through laxity. And then the other was pay attention to your experience of God, that the Lord does intend to encounter you, to meet you, and to meet you in, uh, in experience, but then also to be able to be detached from experiences that are necessarily pleasing in order to go through a purging of those experiences to detach you called the dark night in order to elevate into a whole new depth of um, communion with God. Uh, and so obviously the, the great writings of St. John of the cross, um, beautiful themes, Dr. Malloy. And again, very relevant for our theme today. Well, we're up against a break. When we come back, I'm going to apply this to the religious order that Pope Francis just identified as having an authentic founding that is connected to a work of the a work of God in this present moment, uh, and that is the priestly fraternity of Saint Peter, the FSSPs, in a decree that he just uh, released uh, back on February 19th. Back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Dr. Christopher Malloy. So Dr. Malloy, here we are. We've been kind of scanning the history of the church and we see this theme of movements stirred into existence by the Holy Spirit, even apart from the will of the founders. And the Lord starts using them to bring reform and renewal to the church. And uh, uh, we've seen a number of insights that complement each other from the Benedictines to the Franciscans and Dominicans, and then a brief reference to uh, the Discalced Carmelites and some others from the, uh, the time of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Well, here we are today. And today, if, if we were to scan the horizon in the church recently, we could point to the missionaries of charity as a beautiful example of the Lord stirring something into existence. But I want to focus on the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, the FSSP community, because Pope Francis on the 19th received a couple of the leadership of the of the FSSPs in audience, specifically to discuss their charism, their mission, 
and their founding in 1988. And he celebrated and affirmed them in their mission and in their founding as an authentic work of God. And I love that. And that's beautiful. And I think it's something that with all of the, um, the energy and all of the, the ink or digital ink that has been spilt around the traditional Latin mass, I think it's beautiful to ponder for a little bit, what is the mission of the priestly fraternity of St. Peter and what can we take from it if in fact, in accord with what Pope Francis is saying, that this ought to be recognized as an authentic movement of the Holy Spirit meant for reform and renewal in the church? Yeah, so especially when you see the growth, let's just say, on the parochial level of uh, parishes um, of the FSSP, the growth is just it's hard to it's really hard to even fathom there's no statistics on it but this that and the other parish are experiencing uh growing pains mm -hmm. bursting at the seams there's no room um i mean may i speak about my please parish? i'm not going to name but um, you attend an FSSP I, parish. I, I attend a parish. And FSSP. first, tell them about what is the and, what is that uh, charism? Because again, some of the folks listening may not know yes. what is the charism of the priestly fraternity of Saint Peter. Good, yeah. So it is to say and celebrate the sacraments according to uh, the the books of at 1962. So this is before the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council. Um, so not just Latin, but the, the 1962 books, right? So um, because the, the new mass is in Latin as well. Uh, and um, so, you know, and in fact, I, you and I, I think, attended Latin masses um, over at CUA uh, when we were in grad school. You know, beautiful, wonderful uh, celebrations. But the, the priestly fraternities charism is to celebrate the old Latin mass, you could say a traditional Latin mass, right? TLM, as you, uh, you often hear. And so that's, that's the charism. And so you were, you were about to mention about what your experience is. If we wanted to say, are there signs that this is a movement of the Holy Spirit at work today? Yeah. So um, to get to mass at 830, I have to leave my house, which is 10 minutes away. I have to leave it at 7.30 because I want to get in line so I can get a seat. It, there's no room. It, it's that crowded. And um, this, is, uh, this is unexpected. So you just, you, you know, the parish keeps adding mass after mass, or it was, you know, for a number of years adding mass. You can't add any more mass. There's not enough time in the day. And so there's masses throughout the day and there's no room. So then there's a parish hall where you know, there people will uh, attend there. Sometimes a mass is said simultaneously there, and so it's it's um, it's unbelievable. But what I love is even before I started attending, these priests are there. I mean, they're not they're not like Saint Therese. You know, it's not like a Saint John of the Cross. I'm not saying that everyone's a holy roller and saint, but they're there for us. And so confession, so many hours. Uh, per week in confessions. And the line is huge. There's more than one priest at any time to hear confessions. And so, you you know, people lining up, people don't attend. They go, so at any rate, what, what you see is a blossoming, lots of kids, lots of people attending, getting great advice. Uh, honestly, this past Sunday, priest was preaching and it's hard to take. It's like Fran St. Francis, right? So he said, look, Lent's around the corner. And um, what are we doing? Honestly, we're just delighting in this world and its pleasantries. You know, even non-sinfully, is, is that what we're doing? Or are we preparing for heaven? And he goes, you know, fasting is really good. It's one of those things to help you prepare for heaven and to get rid of vice and almsgiving and prayer itself. You know, so, I, so these are the kind of homilies I love. I mean, they're very serious. They're not, you know, um, they're not dour and all that kind of stuff, but they're, they're serious. And I, I hear that. And it's hard sometimes to hear that. Well, you know, um, Dr. Maloya, is what you're talking about for me is precisely one of the signs of what a movement does. A movement doesn't replace the institutional church, but it actually brings us into nearness and a depth of communion with the institutional church that we might miss out on were it not for the gift that this movement brings. 
And so I want to say that when I think about the FSSP, the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, and they have several parishes in my listening audience's uh, area. So there are two uh, in the Archdiocese of Seattle, St. Joe's in Tacoma, and the North American Martyrs, they have a new church in Edmonds. And then there's St. Joan of Arc in Post Falls, Idaho. Um, these churches are full. Um, we have to do two cars. One car goes uh, get leaves and uh, gets there a half an hour before mass to make sure that we get seats and Same thing. and go to confession. And then the others can show up 15 minutes later. And I have all that embarrassment until my rest of my family shows up because everyone keeps coming in saying, are these seats available? <laughs> That's exactly the same thing. <laughs> Funny. Um, but for me, it's, um, it's like it, 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 what, what the Pope, what Pope Francis just did in meeting with two of the leadership of the uh, priestly fraternity of St. Peter, and you can read about it by going to their website, fssp.com, fssp.com, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter in Latin, uh, fssp.com. You can read about uh, the, the visit with Pope Francis. You can read his message and his decree and how he sees their mission of promoting and celebrating uh, the traditional Latin mass and the sacraments in accord with the 1962 um, liturgical books, that there's a gift here. There's a gift here that's meant to bring about renewal in the church. Now, that doesn't mean everyone is called into that movement. That doesn't mean everyone is going to be blessed by that movement. But I love what our Holy Father did because it creates a counter narrative to some of the language that sometimes you hear said about um, people who attend the traditional Latin mass, that they're rigid, that they're bringing, fostering division, uh, that they're judgmental, and instead points back to the burning core, which is God is about something. God is doing something in the church today to reform and renew the church. He's doing many things, and there are many movements, but count as one among them, the institutes and included among these different religious orders is the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, that they're doing an important work of God today. Dr. Malloy, you've got one minute to finish the program. Well, can I say something that's related? And that's St. Vincent de Paul movement. And this kind of maybe can bring together a number of things. St. Vincent de Paul um, movement was started by Blessed Frederick Ozana, all right, about a hundred and uh, almost 200 years ago now. And my parish has a chapter. That helps us be in contact with other parishes that don't have that. They do you not know, just celebrate the, the mass that you commonly see that we're called, you know, sometimes called Novus Ordo, but the, the mass that was produced in the wake of Vatican uh, um, II. And so this, that kind of enterprise, works of charity, prayer together, fellowship, we associate with other parishes. So this is, um, you know, so it's not a ghetto kind of thing. A legitimate, as it were, charism going back to the roots of the liturgy, but totally open to the entire universal Catholic Church, which is not just Roman, by the way, but also Eastern. Amen. Well, Dr. Malloy, I, I promised we'd have a chance to take a look at your book, False Mercy, but uh, I think I, I, I didn't lie. It wasn't intentional, but we had a great conversation today. So I'm going to have to have you back on another occasion Very good. to discuss your book, False Mercy. Again, that's Dr. Christopher Malloy joining me today on Sound Insight. God bless you all. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.